Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel and Ian joins me. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing pretty good. I'm hanging in there. The Leafs are on their bye week this week, so I'm going to be watching a lot more games from around the NHL. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who I'm going to watch right now. I ask people for their top five favorite teams to watch lately. Do you have five that come to mind for you? Um, Pittsburgh, Colorado, Vancouver, Connor McDavid, and... Hmm... I was going to throw Carolina I was going to say Carolina, mine. yeah, because... Immediately, my brain went to Aho Shvechnikov and the storm surge, and I am very much on board with all of those things. So, yeah, I would say probably those teams. I mean, can't ignore Pittsburgh now. They've been unreal without Crosby, and then you throw Crosby in there, and yeah. it's just dumb. Four-point I... night on his return, no big deal. I'm really interested to see what they do down the stretch here, because it looks like a legitimate cup contender. Again, reminds me of those teams that they had in 2015-16 and even the year afterwards. Yeah, I would say, yeah, and I feel like that's a pretty good topic kind of to to kick off today's podcast because I think everyone sort of bets against the Penguins every time they get injuries and my cognitive bias basically tells me, no, don't do that because every time they prove you wrong. Um, so... We're going to talk about biases, and Ian, I'm going to let you talk about kind of your background in this, because I feel like it's super important when we discuss this. Yeah, sure. I think it's one of the things that helped push me into more of a numbers-ish approach, and obviously I still watch lots of video now, and I think that combining the qualitative information that you see on the ice with the quantitative information, that's when you tend to arrive at the best decisions, but... I did a undergrad in psychology. I also did criminology. It was a double major, but I, I was planning on being a lawyer when I went to university. I thought I was going to do criminology and just take it the whole way, then go into law school. I fell in love with psychology, and it became another double major I did, and it was because I was so fascinated with all these biases that we have. If you look up a list of just you know cognitive biases on Wikipedia, you'll find a list of like a hundred of them. The human brain's weird. We tend to take these mental shortcuts to arrive at decisions, and it makes sense It's because that's how we get there. You wouldn't be able to take in all the information in the world you know, in, in a snap of a second, so you need to take these kind of mental shortcuts to help the world make sense to you. But sometimes those shortcuts that you take end up resulting in skewing your perception on a player or on uh, the value of something. And I think that relates to sports, and and we can find a way to relate it back to hockey. And I think that's going to be our goal today when we talk about some of the biases that come into play when we're evaluating players. Right, and we'll talk about the biases that come into play, um, how they can kind of be eliminated. There are biases that are inherent with numbers as well, so we'll talk about those, our own personal experience with them. And then one of my favorite things, which doesn't seem to get talked about enough, is how people use numbers, but how numbers are very easily cherry-pickable. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I'm saying. Um, To fit your narrative, and that's a bias as well. So there's a number of different things we're going to touch on, but it's basically going to discuss biases and and the different types. And Ian's going to define a couple of different ones and, and relate them to hockey just because... That way you'll 
um it's more easily understandable and i can't wait for this because like i have no idea what's about to come out of your mouth <laughs> okay so I, I just want to start with a couple of like the the really hot ones that a lot of people probably know like for example the gambler's fallacy i'm not sure if that's one that you're familiar with but this idea that if there are five coins that are flipped in a row that are heads you're thinking okay so the next one's got to be tails you know we're due for a tails or if you're thinking oh there's five in a row that were heads it means that there's there's going to be another heads the fact that you think that at all is 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 just it's it's wrong because it's it's a 50% chance nothing that happened in the past is going to impact the luck factor moving forward and i think this is something that you know with shooting percentage or save percentage we tend to assume that because someone got lucky over a previous stretch that they're going to get lucky in the future or sometimes we think, oh, they went on this PDO bender, so now they're going to regress to the mean and they're going to be terrible for the next few games. And that's not how it works either. Luck is just random, and we expect you to have normal luck moving forward. I think sometimes we forget that with players, especially when the shooting percentages are drastically different from their career uh, percentage. If you have a guy who's shooting really low, we don't expect him to go through the roof the rest of the season. We just expect him to return to being himself. Right, so Zach Cassian's a good example. He's playing on a line with McDavid. He's shooting, I think, 18% or something like that. And it's rumored that Edmonton's going to give him a contract in the neighborhood of 3 or $4 million, and everyone's like, whoa, settle down. I really hope they do that, too. Four years of term for a fourth liner who's playing with Connor McDavid. That's just good decision-making there. Okay, Glad so that's the, the gambler's <laughs> fallacy. What's, what's another one? All right, let's go with another one I really like. How about the halo effect? Halo effect is... The best way to describe it, I think, is... The example that I always remembered is that if there's a really attractive person, you tend to assume that they're going to have uh, a good personality because we like associating those things with each other. So Meanwhile, player... it's the opposite in most cases. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know, with a hockey player, if there's a player that you hear in the media who's just a really great guy, you're going to be more likely to give him the benefit of the doubt when he's on the ice. And I think we see this with a lot of media types who pick on certain players but not others. The ones who give the really good answers to, to media are the ones who are really good interviews. I'm sure you'll notice that they're talked about a lot more friendly. Some of that might be intentional, but I bet you a lot of it's unintentional. And it's just the halo effect taking place because we like to think that people who are... Um, you know, are, are positive in one way that we look at them. We're going to assume that they're positive in other elements when that's not always the case, you know? Or sometimes there's this great player who's fantastic with a puck on their stick. You might be overrating that player a bit defensively, you know? I think maybe in Toronto, I'd use the example of maybe Morgan Riley, but I'm not sure if you can think of players who maybe fit that description. Um, Overrated defensively. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk Toronto, let's talk Mitch Marner. Like, that's overrated defensively. Um, I You're saying he shouldn't be a Selkie candidate? No, he shouldn't. And to a same degree when he was here, Nazem Kadri. Like, no, stop that. I think um, when you're talking about the Selkie, like, these are serious... Like, you talk about candidates, Patrice Bergeron, and I don't know what you think of Jonathan Taves, but it's certainly a better defensive player than Mitch Marner or William Nylander to that degree. And I, I think... Maybe that's another bias. I don't know if you have um, a definition or a, a category this falls under, but when you're near something, maybe it's recency bias, but if you're near something, so we're near Toronto, so naturally we are likely to talk about them more in the same way that the media that covers the Leafs, even though they're quote-unquote national media, they're more likely to push the Leafs or be against them. Is there something for that? 
that says if you're exposed to some overexposed to something that you're more likely to focus on that? Yeah, maybe endowment bias is the best way of putting it. And all that means is that we tend to value our own things more than we value other people's things, even if they're two things that have identical value. And and the place you'll see this the most is on online trade proposals. Um, You know, the the, the Georgiev debate right now on Leafs Twitter is is a fun time. But basically, we we tend to overrate our own prospects and underrate, you know, prospects of other teams around the league. If you cheer for Team X, let's say you're a fan of the Dallas Stars, you're going to be much higher in the Dallas Stars prospects than the Nashville Predators prospects. It's just a fact. It's just the way that this bias works. You know, we tend, and it, I mean, it makes sense because the more you're around something, the more you're going to pay attention to its positives. But that doesn't mean that you know someone on a, a, a AHL team around the league with identical numbers and identical production isn't an identical prospect. You know, and I think that we tend to have this. We we tend to look at our own teams with rose-colored glasses, and then we tend to look at prospects on other teams through a critical eye. And that's part of the reason online trade proposals uh, never work, because we we care way too much about our own team's prospects. All of your team's C and B-level prospects are worth a top four defenseman. It's just a fact. It's it's the way that online trade proposals work. (laughs) Yep, that's basically how it works, and... I think that's that's good. Can you um, define recency bias, please? Because I like it gets talked about a lot, and I feel like there's a, maybe a bit of a misconception as to what qualifies and what doesn't, and maybe how it gets used in hockey. I mean, recency bias is it's just it's the way our brains work. We remember more recent information more than we remember information that happened in the past. If I asked you to remember a list of twenty random words, you'd remember the first or second on that list, and you'd remember like the the last one or the second last one. So those are called primacy effects and recency effects. Primacy is the first thing you see. So the first week of the regular season, you're probably gonna remember a lot more than you remember, you know, the tenth or eleventh week in the regular season. But you're also you're gonna remember the last string of three or four games a lot better than you do the ones from a couple weeks ago. And we tend to get caught into these. Uh, every regular season has its ups and downs. You know what I mean? Every team goes through losing streaks. Every team goes through winning streaks. And when your team's in a losing streak, I can guarantee you that the media coverage of them is going to be very negative, and it's going to be kind of all up in the air. And oh, Toronto's lost a few straight years. Now they're out of a playoff race. Uh, is this a team that can really contend for a cup? And then meanwhile, if they're winning, it's it's you know plan the parade, and that's the way it is in a lot of cities. But it's the way our brains work, so I understand why it happens. But we tend to throw out a lot of stuff that happens in the middle of a player's season or in the middle of a team season. And that doesn't mean that it matters any less than something that just happened. So is that why the middle of the season is called the dog days of the season? Because nobody really remembers it. Seems like no one really cares. But you remember what happened at the beginning and you remember what happens at the end. Is that kind of plays into it? Yeah, the two points that you pick up in January and February, those matter just as much as the points that you picked up in April. But we don't think of it that way. We don't think of it that way, but they do. So that's that's clearly a bias that just kind of affects us. And I understand it. You know, it makes sense. It's the way that most people tend to look at things. But try to remember the importance of stuff that happens in the middle of a player season, because an 82 game season for a player, you know, it's just just it's it's all important. Maybe the playoff games are a bit more important. You're going to be focusing a lot more. But if we're just focusing on a really small sample, I know we talked about this with the World Juniors. 
it's a lot of recency bias when we're talking about our draft rankings. And if you look at any draft rankings, you'll see that players who participated in the World Juniors go flying up the draft boards. And the players who performed a bit poorly for two weeks, they go way down most people's draft boards. And I think you talked about this. That doesn't make any sense. There's a large sample of data that we're ignoring here and just focusing on a smaller sample. It always makes more sense to take the larger body of work into account. Right. Okay. So now we move to something like the eye test. Let's numbers. Is there a bias or is there a category for, um, we'll call it the hockey men. Like I know my eye test because this is what I've done and screw your numbers kind of thing. And then is there a bias for, is it the same type where it's, I know these numbers because math and objectivity and screw your eyeballs. Like, is that, is that a thing or is that just I honestly think that's just stubbornness. <laughs> it's just stubbornness, not, okay. If you're not willing to listen to someone else, I think it's a big problem with just everyone in, in the year 2020 and the way that we get into these little pockets on social media and a lot of people telling us that we're always right and we're not comfortable when someone tells us we're wrong. No, then so, you yell at someone and then everything is productive and everything gets solved. Isn't that your experience? That's what I try to do. Or I'll, I'll angrily DM someone <laughs> or I'll look up their their likes on Twitter. Oh or, my God, that's my old, favorite. Old tweets from a, a couple of years ago and try to make them look bad. And instead of just, you know, discussing something rationally, no one likes doing that. No, but, instead we're going to spend four hours going through to see what this person said when they were 14 years old as if no one's changed from the time they were 14 to 19. But, you know what, I'm not sure if we have a name for that bias, but let's talk about it, where if you're watching a lot of hockey and then you're not willing to listen to a particular number, here's the thing, sometimes I have those moments, it tends to be in smaller samples, because over a large sample, if a player is consistently getting positive results, at some point, they're doing, they must be doing something right. Right? If you're doing this for two, three, four seasons, and your team's just always spending more time in the offensive zone than the defensive zone, and they're getting more shots and scoring chances, unless you're playing alongside an elite player for all of those minutes, then I think we have to say that you're doing something right that benefits you. But at the same time, when I'm doing my Leafs report cards and a player finishes the game with you know good numbers, but... I watched them play and they weren't responsible for any of their great on ice, you know, shot differentials or scoring chances. It was they had a bad game and their line mates had a pretty good game and it helped propel their overall numbers. But if you're looking for specific plays that that player was making, they weren't there. And I, I know that's something that I've kind of wrestled with back and forth in that in a small sample, if the numbers are bad, but I thought the player went played really well then I tend to focus more on the eye test over a long period of time. If my eyes are telling me that something's bad, but the player keeps getting positive results, I have to ask myself what I might be biased in and what might be holding me back from looking at that player and, and his positives and what he does well to impact play in a positive direction. Okay. So how can... Because I see this argument on Twitter all the time, and frankly, I'm getting very sick of it. The whole thing that numbers eliminate bias, and we'll touch on how... You, you can be biased with numbers as well. But when you're talking about the eye test like you just were, how do numbers help eliminate it other than to say it's a bigger sample size? To me, there's there's an objectivity to it, right? There's This isn't what I saw. This isn't what I believe. These are the cold, hard facts. He, this player had this many zone entries. This player allowed this many controlled zone entries. This player iced the puck this many times. This player 
I think the perfect example right now is William Nylander is a perimeter player, yet he has the most goals from the inner slot in the NHL. Like, how how do we use numbers to make bias less prevalent without it's pissing question. people off? <laughs> well, you're always going to piss people off, so you have to accept that, first of all, because uh, hockey, the 200 hockey men don't love numbers, but... Here's the thing about the objectivity component. I watch a lot of hockey, but I might view a certain player in a certain light and I might criticize them more when they make a mistake and I might see a player who I see in a very positive light and I might overlook their mistakes a bit more often without realizing it. Can you give us an example? Um, I think with Travis Dermott, I don't notice as much of his negative uh, moments on the ice because I'm maybe I'm rooting for him so hard to make positive plays, especially this year where he's he hasn't played as well as you know the, a lot of people expected him to. And, and the what same about time, a player that you're overly negative about? Because I think like I'm thinking every- Cody Cece here, who I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very rude to. Uh, <laughs> oh I, man, I feel bad for Cody Cece because I, I want him to do well. And he shouldn't be playing on Toronto's top pair, and thank God he isn't anymore. But um, I think sometimes when there's a player who you see in a negative light, especially if there's a player that you dislike a lot more than the average person, think of that player that you're much higher on than most people, you're probably more likely to overlook some of that player's uh, mistakes. And now think of that one player that you dislike more than most people, you're probably going to notice more of that player's mistakes. Think of the player that your dad yells at most of the time. So me. Are you the player that your dad yells at? Were you the player? <laughs> oh my goodness, you have no idea. I would have three points and it would be like, well, you didn't win this key face off. I'm like, all right, we won the game 4-1. <laughs> like, um, but I think it's a good thing that you pointed out. Like you are, you and I have conversations. I feel like we talk every day and, and you've admitted this where like at the beginning of the year, people were all over you about your report cards and I was kind of trying to help you through it and saying, like, okay, me, like, this is kind of what I notice. And Travis Dermott, I think, is is the perfect example where you are more likely to see the positives. And I can say this, you see it with your eyes and, and the numbers. Um, at York, like, we have a couple players where right away I'm like, man, like, I love how these guys play. And whatever the case may be. And I had that with Ilya Mikheyev in preseason. I went, holy crap, this guy's a player. Right, and so immediately now, even when the guy plays poorly, I'm like, well, he did this, this, and this well. Meanwhile, it, it was literally a horrendous mess all over the place. And then, like, I'm always trying to look for the positives, whereas when we put a guy in the lineup that I just, I don't like his style or whatever it is, I notice every single mistake, and it it drives me up the wall. So it's something where I've tried to be like, okay, like I'll make note of it. And at the end of the game, I have my notes. And if I have more positive notes on one guy or more negative notes on one guy, then that's something I'll evaluate. But you also talk with other members of the coaching staff. You look at the numbers. Like I remember thinking, oh, this guy played so well. And then he had 22% shot chair and I was like "Mm, never mind now that can be possible like especially (laughs) if you're the weak side winger a lot stuck in the defensive zone and there's not much you can do uh he was a defenseman at the same time if your partner lays an egg defensively and you get stuck in your own zone it can happen in in one game samples I've noticed this from doing the report cards it's that the numbers can vary like crazy and not necessarily correlate to how well you actually played if I play great but my two line mates don't show up 
we're going to be spending a lot of time stuck on defense. And that's oh, yes, just that kind happens. of the way hockey works. Yeah, so that's where I think watching the games really matters Hashtag. compared to the numbers. Yeah, Dom, watch more games, buddy. <laughs> right, so you and I have both had experiences both ways where it's like, well, the numbers say this. I remember these words came out of my mouth. He has a significantly better game score and therefore should play. And, or like higher up in the lineup, whatever it was, I was making an argument and I had a bunch of stats where I was like, okay, positive in every aspect, let's give this kid an opportunity kind of thing. Meanwhile, I guess it had escaped my brain that like quality of competition was a thing. And once he started getting the top two defenseman matchup, his numbers didn't look as nice. They still were pretty good, but they didn't look as nice. He wasn't 80% shot share anymore kind of thing. And so... I also think that if you have a player that you like, you're more likely to want to put them in an opportunity to succeed. So you would love to see Travis Dermott play in the top four consistently, and you would like if Cody Cece played in the bottom six. Whereas if you look at the numbers, and obviously we don't have access to everything that that teams have, maybe there's a player who isn't playing in a role that you would like him to, and that's because maybe the quality of competitions hasn't been considered as much by you as maybe it has by others. So I think there's definitely different things. I think another thing to consider is players who play a style of hockey that we enjoy as fans of the game of hockey. And yes. I think we see this a lot with um, some of the, you know, the, the grinders in this league. Some of the, the guys like, I'm trying to think, who's that guy that Vancouver signed to, to score some goals for them and get in on the four check. Michael, Michael Furland. Furland. Michael Furland, I think, is a perfect example of this because I think he plays hard and I think he plays hockey the way that it was played in the 90s. But I don't think he's as effective at impacting the game as a lot of people would have you think because I think a lot of people who value what he does are overlooking some of the, the negatives in his game. And I think that that's uh, maybe a bias that, that he never has great on-ice numbers. He never impacts play in a super positive way, but he does all these things that you notice and you really like and you think it has value. And it's hard because maybe that stuff does have a bit more value in the playoffs than it does in the regular season. But how much is he truly helping his team win? Well, objectively looking at the numbers, they don't love him so much. So you can ask yourself what where the numbers might be, you know, falling short a little bit and what they might not be considering but I think we also need to consider the fact that hey maybe this guy just isn't quite as good as we think he is because we just really like the way he plays right and that's I actually have a perfect example of that and and so at York we have this line um and they they're all really big like they're all over 6'3 but they can all skate relatively well and they're not out there we don't ask them to go and score half a goal a game type of situation but they do things, they have a style of play, they get in, they have the most cycle passes completed, like most time in zone because they just go in there and they hold the puck and you just can't, it's like probably 600 pounds combined between the three of them, if not more. Um, so what well, happens is... in college is, hockey, I gotta think they're bigger than the, the other, you know, Ontario Canadian players they're facing. Yeah, they're pretty big. And so what I would say is, okay, let's say we have a couple shifts in a row where we're getting run over in our own end, or we give up a goal. We just need something to get momentum. I can, off the top of my head, remember three separate situations this year where we threw them out and said, okay, boys, like, go turn the tide. And they went out there and had a shift and either 
once they scored on their own shift and the other t- two times that I'm remembering, they were in their zone for so long that we then executed a change and scored. So it's, it's one That's of those... always awesome when you get a line change like while you're in the offensive zone. But it's That's one of those best. things that it doesn't necessarily show up, but I know as a coach that that's something that they're really strong at that doesn't necessarily show up because none of them are going to get assists, even though they created that situation, right? So it's it's one of those things where you have to do what you and I kind of are a huge um, supporters of, and that's marry the eye test with the numbers, where it's... Understand the shortcomings of both. Exactly. And you have to combine them because they're both... The reality is your eye test is a tool. It's not the be-all and end-all of everything. And analytics, statistics, whatever you want to call them, are tools. They're not the be-all and end-all of anything either. And if you can't understand how they both go together, then it doesn't really matter because then you're not using the tools to their greatest effectiveness. And the way that I like to think about it is, think of yourself watching a hockey game on a random Tuesday night. You're going to sit in front of the TV. You're going to be on the couch. How many plays are you going to remember at the very end? You haven't written anything down. You haven't taken any notes. How many plays do you think you can recite back to me with like understanding who screwed up where? Maybe a handful? I would say you are more likely to remember A, superstar plays. Like if a, if a really special play happens, you're going to remember that. B, if a guy that you don't like or don't think is very good, so you with Cody CC, for example, and my dad with Marty Marincin, you are more likely to remember if they made a mistake. And my for dad with a Jake bunch Gardner. of old white men on Twitter, uh, William Nylander, whereas I'm going to be more likely to remember or you're going to be more likely to remember a great play by Ilya McKayev or Travis Derman. If I'm watching the Canucks, the odds that I remember something that Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes did versus something that Chris Tanev or um, Jake Vertana did are probably a lot different. You're more likely to remember things that the players you like do well and the players you don't like don't do well, I would say. And the, the best way of wording that is things that are consistent with your views. You're going to remember stuff that's consistent with how you view someone. So if you see a player is bad, you're going to remember their bad plays more than you remember their good plays. And if you see a player is good, you're going to remember their good plays a lot more often than you remember their bad plays. That's not really a fair way of looking at it, but again, it's, it's how our brains work, and we have to try to overcome that bias. What's the easiest way to do that? It, it, there, that's actually probably the better question here is how do you overcome some of these biases? If right. I realize I sit in front of the mirror and I go, holy crap, maybe I do have a Morgan Riley bias. What's the best way to overcome it? Because I tried talking about it and I wrote an article about it going, hmm, the numbers said this, I said this. Here's what I saw, but here's what the numbers say. And I tried to get, get into an open dialogue about it and discuss and it. And how many hours have you and I spent discussing both of our biases? A lot. Trying to help each other. (laughs) Right? And I think that you brought up a really good point. How do we change it? Or how do we look at it differently? And honestly, the best advice I got from someone when we were talking about biases was you just have to be open-minded. If you're not open-minded, do not even bother having the discussion with the person because you're not going to get anywhere. But if the person's open-minded, that's the best way that you can have an impact on their perspective because if they're open-minded to your perspective the odds that they're actually attentively listening are way higher 
Yeah, and that's why if someone isn't willing to listen to, like, you know, the, use any numbers whatsoever in hockey analysis, then I just think they're lying because we use points all the time. You know what I mean? So that that always bothered me. But at the same time, if all you're going to do is cite a number and that's it, that's not an argument either. Let's get into a discussion here. Let, let's see why we disagree and see if we can get to the bottom of it. And at the end of the day, maybe we'll agree to disagree. But if you're willing to listen to someone who disagrees with you and get into an open discussion with them, you're going to learn a lot more than if you just walk away from that discussion altogether. Right. And I think a great example is um, I had heard basically that there's been a with this new movement, teams are some teams are hiring um, some people that kind of look at numbers or they're seeking consultants and and coaches are being told, oh, you should play like this line combination together because of X, Y, and Z. And, and the coaches, A, are like, have you ever watched my team? Because if, to me, if you haven't watched the team play, you can't really have an opinion on who should be playing with who. Because I think the best example I can give you is when Marcus Johansson was playing he is naturally a pass-first guy, and he's a really good guy at passing to the slot. And those numbers were more prevalent when he was playing with certain players. Well, if you're just going to stick him on a line with a guy who only shoots the puck but doesn't get into spots where he can accept passes, you're not going to maximize either of their talents. And a, it's a coach's job to know that. Oh, yeah, the numbers say that this guy's a really good shooter and this guy's a really good passer, so... Potentially, they should play together. But if the guy who's shooting the puck doesn't get into spots where he's going to be available for a pass, then it doesn't matter what kind of passes that the other guy's going to make because he's not going to be there. So there's got to be the give and take of, okay, the numbers say that this kind of matches, but as a person who watches the game, you got to be able to say, okay, yeah, you know what? This combo might work because they play stylistically um, congruent. Whereas if you know that you're going to put two perimeter players, let's say, on a line, like, how's that going to work for you? Probably not very well. Quick question. As someone who's worked for an NHL team and you're currently working with a university hockey team as, you know, coaching staff. So you probably see a lot of stuff online or especially when you're with the Devils, you probably saw a lot of stuff online that you disagreed with. And a lot of it was probably stats based. And uh, I know that. The analytics community can sometimes have a bit more snark to them than Ooh, you'd ideally like. <laughs> so what is, I guess, your biggest frustration as someone who worked with a team that you'd see online and you just go, oh, no, but you don't get it because of this? I think it's the lack of open-mindedness on both sides. The amount of times I would just sit back and laugh at various, and I they don't need to be named, um, analytics people yelling and screaming and posting charts saying, well, this is why they should play together. And without even having, I know for a fact that they haven't watched a single second of that team play is kind of one of those things. Like I saw it about New Jersey where there were a certain few people that were getting into arguments about who Taylor Hall should have played with in the back half of his heart season. And I'm kind of like, no, no, no. He's, first of all, he is on a point streak of, I think at the time it was like 18 games. If you think we're switching his line, you're out of your goddamn mind. Because he would actually just strangle someone at that point, the poor guy. But one of the things I found the most frustrating is just the, you mentioned it, the snark. And also, like they're not open-minded to watching the games or, or the eye test. It's like, I'm right because of numbers. No, like you're not. 
you have to be able to combine both. And if you can't combine both, then your analysis isn't really valid, at least in my eyes. I think there can be value to someone who didn't watch a particular team because it would be so removed from a lot of the things that you're thinking of that I might take that input into consideration. The same way I'd listen to someone who doesn't like numbers at all, but has really good analysis of the play on the ice. So I feel like there are certain things you can take out of it, but I always think that the best analysts out there, the ones who understand the value of the numbers and also understand the value of the video analysis. And that's what we're seeing from the best scouts these days. That's what we're seeing from the best people on TV. You know, the Ray Ferraros of the world. He's never going to cite Corsi, but he understands it and he gets it. And he he knows that it's important to spend more time on offense than defense. Well, that's a good example because I've heard like, I don't just watch the Leafs. (laughs) Let's, let's get back. Ian has to do report cards. I don't, I have game center and watch many other games. I have, TSN has started using SportLogic, so has Sportsnet, and I have physically heard Ray Ferraro, Mike Johnson, um, Steve Valakett has always used it, um, and I want to say there's one more uh, in the U.S. that consistently cites non-traditional statistics, so not goals, points, and assists. I honestly don't think I have heard Ray, Mike... Um, talk about face-off percentage and let me tell you there are some other dudes who talk about face-off percentage ad nauseum oh my god when you hear about how like oh this team they, they only won first uh, of all five of the of the 11 face-offs in that period let's I'm just like, talk about that mean for a second one less than you would have hoped <laughs> i had to when i was in new jersey i had to manually track face-offs myself because the face-offs that were the nhl stats were putting out weren't even correct so half the time when they cite face-offs on the broadcast it's not even correct So there's that. But there has to be this new... You have to be open-minded. And that's just kind of the bottom line for me. Um, And it was the most frustrating part. It was all of the arguments on Twitter. And let me tell you, like, Steve Simmons, class A1. (laughs) Like, (laughs) the amount of arguments that that guy got into because he just wasn't open-minded at all. And there are some analytics people who are the same way, but just with analytics as opposed to their eye test, um, it was like it was totally ridiculous. Neither one of them would have ever valued the other's opinion because they just aren't capable of being open-minded. So how do you marry it? What's the best way to marry the eye test with the video? Or sorry, the eye test with the numbers? Uh, so step one, be open-minded. <laughs> like, All right, so most of us have already failed already, but for those of us who have passed so phase one... So we've wiped out 85% <laughs> of the population. All right, there you go. All that right. was a good start. All right, phase two. You have to watch multiple teams. That's such an important point. I think <laughs> from watching the Leafs so closely over the last couple of years, I realize when I watch other teams around the NHL that I have a better understanding of the game of hockey because I'm not watching the same system every single night. Right. You have to be able to see... Um, how players play in chaos, which is when the system breaks down, what different systems there are, um, how creative players are. So if I were to stick Kale McCarr into Montreal's back end, where would he fit? Probably on the top pair with Shea Weber. Um, And how does he fit with their system? How does he fit with their style of play? Because you could stick him in Tampa Bay and he would be quite something. Put up like 100 points. <laughs> he just might, right? Or Quinn Hughes. Think about the value he adds to Vancouver's 
defensive corpse because he is just so different than Chris Tanev, Alex Edler. So every time he's on the ice, he's a he's like a rover basically. Um, and so it's when funny, you're whenever you're thinking about, of players that you want to bring up that you enjoy watching, you always default to Makar and Hughes. And I'm the exact same way. I can't get enough of their play. Like so, when you're talking about marrying the two, you have to be able. First of all, you've got to understand that both have value. And that's immediately where you lose like 95% of people. I've just accepted that that's a part of life. Exactly. So um, I just, oh, it's just so hard to have an in-depth discussion with so many hockey fans because I just, they start speaking and I'm like, oh, you're not open-minded. This isn't going to go well. But then you still got to try because... A, you've got somewhat of a public reputation to uphold, especially with you being writing for The Athletic. Um, And B, I always like to hear people's perspective, except the dudes that are just like, trade this guy because this, or like, trade this player for a significantly worse player. I'm just like, oh my god, just because you don't think he's good doesn't mean he isn't good. Mm. I don't know. So I that still think is, the Leafs need to trade William Nylander for a third-pairing defenseman. That's a perfect example. It's like, guys will cherry-pick everything wrong with Nylander, including stats. Well, like, this stat isn't good. Okay, so you picked one in, like, 20 stats that wasn't great? Like, he doesn't okay. block shots. He doesn't hit people. He can't be good. Honestly, I look for players that have the least amount of hits because that tells me that, that their team has the puck. You're not allowed to hit people when you when you have the puck. That's how it works that's interference although it doesn't always get called (laughs) it might be time for us to start our kovalev shift here what do you think i feel like yeah we should probably hop on the ice here all right kovalev shift brought to you by major league socks the artist formerly known as bab socks yep you can uh, use the code staff and graph or staff graph on majorleaguesocks.com and pick yourself up a couple pairs of socks i actually just got a few last week and Man, you uh, keep buying them. You're giving them so much business here. I feel like we don't even need to do a, the, the, the ad for them anymore if you're just going to keep buying them socks. They, they, they hook the girl up because they know that I wear them basically exclusively. Um, so I used to be like that. I used to have enough bab socks where I had enough for every day of the week. But then I, I took them to camp with me, which was a big mistake. No. And the wear and tear that goes on when you work at a summer camp, you wake up at 7 a.m. and you go to bed at 10 p.m. and it's just running around nonstop yeah. all day. Yeah, the, there are some holes in the heel of those now. But so. the fact that they even lasted all summer, like I've had mine for a few years now, a couple of the pairs, and like they're still in perfect condition. Yeah, like, it's, it's unbelievable because I have dress socks where it's like I go through a season and they're done. Yeah, I'm never, like, huge on, like, promoting something I don't believe in, but, like, I actually do like them. They're very comfortable, and I know if you buy a certain pair, like, th- some of the proceeds will go to CAMH, so that's always an important thing for me. Yeah, and obviously, my mental health struggles are uh, pretty public, and so any um, organization that supports mental health is definitely going to be an organization that Ian and I probably support. So get yourself some Major League socks, and it's the best way to support the podcast as well. Let's uh, hop on the ice, and I got uh, I got a good question for you. What are the best ways to judge a defensive defenseman? Because the Athletic had a poll thingy come out today, and it wasn't who's the best defenseman, because that's technically what the Norris is for. Who's the best defensive defenseman? 
So Steve Dangle had an awesome tweet recently. He said that if you're a stay-at-home defenseman who doesn't defend well, you should be a stay-at-home defenseman. That is that better have been your tweet of the night in the uh, report cards. Uh, I felt too bad for Marty Marinch, and I didn't want to keep picking on him. But I w- it was one of my favorite tweets that I've read recently because it's funny. These defensemen who block a lot of shots, you know, and these defensemen who hit a lot, and these defensemen who are on the penalty kill, and we, we really trust them defensively. But if you're always on defense, that's a concern to me. So uh, the hard part is that puck moving ability, in theory, shouldn't have anything to do with defense. But at some point, you need to be able to get the puck back. And I think that's a really important thing because a lot of the defensemen that we see as these, you know, quote unquote defensive defensemen, if they're just standing in the middle of the ice and looking to block shots and they're never engaging with the puck carrier and forcing turnovers, then they're not doing their job as a defenseman. And that's something that a Nicholas Jalmerson does really well. It's something that Shea Weber does really well. Getting the puck back when the other team's cycling on you, who can both take away that pass through the middle of the ice to the to the area of the ice that you don't want the other team to get the puck, but can you also win a puck battle and get your team the puck back? So Those are the most important things for me. Jacob Slavin. You just described Jacob Slavin. Jacob Slavin's just good at hockey, man. He's good at everything. <laughs> Him, Brett Pesci, um, I like Jared Spurgeon too, but when I think of defensive defensemen, you want to look at things like and of course none of these are public. Why would they be public? Um, Interrupted cycles, um, deflected passes to the slot. That means you're legitimately interrupting offensive play. Um, Breakups at the blue line. So how many times did you force a dump in? How many times did you force a turnover? Um, Those kinds of things. Like how are you at, when you're actually, when the other team has the puck, how good are you at defending? And this is where I think the chip technology will come in really handy because we'll now be able to see if they make it public, how close is your gap? How tight are you to the player with a puck or the player you're supposed to be covering? Do you play them closely? Do you give them all kinds of room? That would speak to how good are you defensively? What is the time between a puck reception for opponent and when you make contact with them? That'll tell me how close you are. That'll tell me how aggressive you are. Um, those kinds of things would lead to best defensive defenseman for me. It's what, you ha- what you're doing when you are actually defending. And I think the best way to quantify it is you look at the defensemen who are facing top competition and look at how many scoring chances are you giving up. You know, I think that's the easiest way to put it. We can talk about expected goals, we can talk about some more complicated stuff, but are you giving up chances from good areas on the ice? Or are you doing a good job at preventing those? If you give up some shots, but most of them are kept to the outside, you can live with that. But how many chances from, let's call it the house, you know, the home plate area from the from the net to the dots to the top of the circle. If you're allowing a bunch of shots from inside there, that's bad. If right. you're so, preventing example, a bunch of shots from in there, you're Nicholas Jalmerson and right. you're very underrated defensively. Okay, so let's say this. Let's say you have two defensemen, right? Defenseman one has... Um, we'll go with two stats, Corsi four and, um, scoring chances four or given up, let's say, right? Let's say this guy's Corsi is 30% or 35%. So it's a bad Corsi. Well, that's, that's, that's like laughably bad. I don't know. Okay. Maybe we'll go 40%. Okay. But he only gave up. He was only on the ice for two scoring chances against all night. Then you have defenseman number two, whose Corsi is... 55%, but he was on 
for seven scoring chances against from the house. Like, how would you evaluate that? Because to me, you want to give up shots from the outside, like, be my guest. And if they go in, like, we'll take that up with the goaltender. But if you're on the ice for seven scoring shots or seven, seven shots on goal from the slot, we need to have a conversation. So in a small sample, completely agree with you. In a larger sample... I'm talking like on a per-game basis. Okay, yeah, because that's the thing. On a per-game basis, yeah, like I don't really care too much about Corsi in like a one-game sample. No, but neither do I. Over time, if you're getting stuck in your own end, even if you're keeping things to the outside, if you're failing to win the puck back and get it up the ice and spend more time on offense than defense, I do think that can hurt you because I think in a game with as many bounces as hockey... If you're stuck in your defensive zone, it just means that more bad stuff can happen. And I don't want to be there. I'd rather be in the offensive zone. I think my point was more we would want the defenseman that gives up the least amount of high danger scoring chances because that would indicate that he's protecting the slot and not allowing passes to get there and not allowing the Royal Road cross-ice passes for scoring chances because those are dangerous, as we've spoken about on this podcast. And I think defending passes is such a good point because that's something that's not publicly available but really matters because if you give up a shot from like a decent location but there's no pass, then it's all right. Your goalie can usually stop it. But if you give up a pass through the middle of the ice to the back door, man, your goalie doesn't have much of a chance on it. And that's something that I think the public numbers are currently missing. Right, which is why the expected goals model at SportLogic doesn't match any of the public expected goals data because they have passing data. Well, it'll be close to some of them. It depends on the team. Depends on the team. It's not close. From what I remember, it's not close on any of the elite offensive teams. So Toronto, Tampa, um, Florida was up there. Interesting. Because they have the the pre-shot data. And so it has an impact. So teams who naturally have more two-on-ones or naturally have um, more cross-ice passes, their expected goals is going to be a ton higher. So basically... If there is a team who does a good job at creating lots of east-west movement in the offensive zone with passes, they're going to be underrated by the public metrics. Yes. And if there's a team who never creates any of that, they're going to be overrated by the public metrics. And I think that was the case a few years ago with Carolina. I think they've been doing a much better job of it lately now that they have Aho and Svechikov, Teravine, and they're starting to create some more movement offensively. Right. All right, so I think um, that was a pretty long shift, so we'll hop yeah, off. Yeah, that was a really long shift. Man, we need, we need a break. We yeah, need we need some right water, and, and yeah, we definitely can't, can't be having these five-minute shifts, but that is your Alexi Kovalev shift brought to you by Major League Sox. Use the code STAFFGRAPH, and you get a 15% discount at checkout off your purchase, and that includes sale items. So you want to support the podcast, support a great company, that's the way to do it. Mailbag, Ian. Alrighty. Why are so many old school hockey fans threatened by the new age approach? Oh. Okay, so the best example I can think of, and I have him blocked on Twitter, but of course it ended up in my DMs. Um, this dude, Baghead, which I don't <laughs> Toronto like, Baghead. <laughs> was just on a crusade against Dubis and Chica this week. And I was like, wow, this is really unnecessary. Um... Honestly, I just think they feel threatened because hockey is sort of the religion and they feel like their church is under attack. I think the hard part is that you can criticize Kyle Dubas, you can criticize John Chaika 
without it being an indictment on analytics. You can just say, well, I, I don't think Dubas did a good job this summer at navigating the cap, particularly with the Marner situation. But that doesn't mean that I think his entire vision for the team is, is you know, the, awful. Right. And, and what amazes me is, and this is a, the best, every time a hockey man gets fired, it's like, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe that it happened. And xyz and all of these excuses and nonsense on twitter and in the newspaper um meanwhile i'm telling you the day that either chaika or dubas gets fired there is going to be a party on a certain section of twitter i mean there's gonna be a party from like party from darren drager and company you know i feel like a lot of the hockey media do you remember the drug galant firing from a few years ago oh and the computer god. boys in florida oh my god I mean, was it the best way to do something with a taxi cab and everything? <laughs> no, the fact that that got out was... The optics um, were not great, but I also don't think it was the computer boys that made that happen. Also, most of their job is for the drafting. Draft. So, uh, Yeah, that whole Florida situation was a tire fire. But honestly, if you're asking me why I think they feel so threatened, it's because hockey is seen as a religion, cult, and they believe that this new analytics approach or new approach is attacking their church. It's I think it's so for ridiculous someone like Brian me. Burke or for anyone who kind of sees hockey that way, for a lot of people who, you know, hate William Nylander in Toronto, for example, I think when you grow up watching the game being played a certain way, you expect it to, to continue to be played that way. And that's what you're going to value. And, I know that there's this, uh, this I forget what it's called, but there's this, the name of this theory for what you liked in your prominent teen years is what you're going to like for the rest of your life, like musically, pop culture wise, because that's where you became the person that you were going to be for the rest of your life. And so the music that I listened to from the ages, you know, 15 through 19, it's probably going to be the music that I listened to for the rest of my life. And I think the way that you watched hockey during those years and the, and the things that you valued at that time it's going to be really hard for you to change your opinion on those things. And, you know, me and you grew up in a much different era of hockey than a lot of people who, you know, saw all these fights during the 80s and 90s. Okay, and but we both like the, the odd fight. <laughs> I, I do like it when it has some meaning behind it. I, don't, I have no per point. Like, I don't understand the drop your gloves at the face-off kind of thing. That always bothered me. Okay, so I would love to see, perfect example, I'd love to see Matthew Kachuk and Zach Cassian or Matthew Kachuk and Drew Doughty fight because there's legitimate animosity there. Kind of I mean, thing, Matthew right? Kachuk's not willing to fight anybody. You know? Yeah, that's a whole different situation. But to answer the question, I honestly just think it's because it's not what they're used to. It's something new. And, and anytime there's something new and shiny, uh, it's threatening. And that's the, like literally the gist of it. And that's honestly, fans aren't the only people threatened by it. Let's just say that. I mean, have you seen that scene in Moneyball at the very end where, like, uh, what is it? The the first man through the wall always gets a bit bloody. But, yep. you know, anytime you threaten someone's livelihood, you threaten someone's way of doing things, there's going to be a lot of pushback to it. And I think we're seeing that with analytics. Anytime, you know, someone, we're seeing it with the Florida Panthers, seeing it with Dubas, seeing it with Chaika. It doesn't mean that these people are infallible. I've been very critical of Dubas over the last year, but that, that doesn't mean that there's no value to paying attention to facts. 
and I always worried the analytics as facts. I'm like, there's this objective data. This is this happened. You know, this guy has been on the ice over the last three years. He's getting outshot every time he's on the ice, outchanced and outscored. Like those are facts, and it's okay for us to talk about facts when we're talking about hockey. Right. All right. So now we've we've covered that. Here's a fun one because um, it still happens in junior hockey a lot. Could a coach GM be in hockey the same way it still works in other sports? So, like, Bill Belichick, Brian Murray, and Lou Amarello were coach and GM at the same time. I think Pat Quinn did it back in the day. The yep. Leafs. Could could it work nowadays with all of the mumbo-jumbo that you have to do as a GM? I just think it's so hard, and I don't see why you'd want to do it when you could have someone as a GM doing multiple scouting trips, you know, and focusing on, on all these other things that aren't the day-to-day th- aspects that go into being a, a head coach. And if you want to be the most successful head coach, I don't think you can concern yourself with some of these, you know, issues that the GM has to deal with just because the day-to-day, the day-to-day experience as an NHL head coach in this league. Oh, it's I can attest crazy. <laughs> so much video prep, so much, like there's so much that goes into it. So I think the idea that, that someone can do both at the same time in twenty in the year twenty twenty, I just I don't think it's possible anymore. And if someone does end up doing it, I think they're doing themselves a disservice in both of their jobs. I think they're gonna it's gonna hurt their performance in both. Yeah, like I think um, maybe fifteen years ago, you would see Lou Lamorello being the perfect example. He fired his coach and just took over behind the bench. Whereas nowadays, you see the GM fire the coach and the associate coach takes over as like an interim thing. And it happened in New Jersey this year. Um, it happened in Calgary this year, where Jeff Ward took over and Elaine Nazardin took over. Um, there's just too much going on. There's a cap to navigate now. There's 87 different things in the CBA you have to navigate now, and seemingly something new comes up every day. Um, to me, like, I totally agree with you. You're, you're doing yourself a disservice, not to mention the fact, imagine you're coaching, but you're the GM as well. Player goes is in your doghouse, and you just decide to trade him. And all of a sudden, you've completely undervalued an asset and that guy goes on to be an impact player somewhere else and you traded him because you had the power to well the idea is that if you did it like bill belichick if you were the you know the godfather if you were just this this the football whisperer and knew everything about the player then maybe you'd be the right person to make that decision but i don't know it's so hard yeah i just i don't think it can work anymore i don't know you see it work in football though and that's that's the one thing where i go hmm if it works in football, why why couldn't it work in hockey? I I can listen to the argument. I'm not sure if I can fully get there though. Right. I just yeah. I, when you think about it though, um, there you have like 25 coaches on an NFL coaching staff, so you get a lot of help. A lot of positional help. You know, the O line coach, the receiving coach, the quarterbacks coach, coach the, the offensive coordinator the, is there. The defensive coordinator is there. The special teams coach is there. Like. Yeah, there's usually one where if you're an offensive coach, you don't worry too much about defense. That's what the defensive coordinator does. Or if you're a defensive coach, you know, that's the offensive coordinator. It's just totally different. And not to mention, like, football, baseball, those are not flow games. You're either on offense or you're on defense. It doesn't switch every five seconds. What if we saw a a, a coach slash GM in the NHL who relied more on his assistants than the average NHL head coach? See, does? then I feel like so. Let's say, let's say, just because he seems to be the guy that would do it, Lou Lamorello. <laughs> no, there's no way he doesn't like giving up power. If he's behind the bench, he's making every single decision. No, but what I'm saying is, is let's say he's the guy, but he brought in coaches that were very strong. 
right? That kind of just strong associate coaches, let's call them. So, like guys who could definitely be head coaches, right? right. Okay, right. So, like almost like lieutenants, basically. You're the general, and you have your commanders or your lieutenants. I'm not really. I familiar. tend to th- I'm, now. I'm picturing Lou Lamorello in like a general's outfit. I don't know. <laughs> like, that is very alarming because you just made me do that too. I just don't, I don't think it could work. He's terrifying enough in a suit and tie. I'm just picturing him in like an old army. Like man, I saw him a in a golf shirt and, and I was absolutely terrified. I can't picture him in a golf shirt. Like <laughs> Lou Lamorello in like a Hawaiian shirt on vacation. Like no, I feel like when he's on vacation, very nice he shows man, up though. in a suit and tie. Very nice man. Very intimidating. Very nice man. Weren't you wearing a hoodie around him one day and you like, mm-hmm. pretended to, to cut it off with a pair of scissors? He's like, actually, him me. and current Leafs coach Sheldon Keefe. <laughs> so, you know what, Rachel? Uh, Is this can't a be listener hoodies question? Around, around the mob boss. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that hoodie thing will forever be. I still have that hoodie. I'm actually wearing it right now. Um, isn't that when you were a female staffer in the in the newspaper? Yes, actually, that is the same day. Uh, both of those things happened in the same day. <laughs> Sounds so, like a good day. Maybe that's a story for a different podcast, the hoodie story. It is a very good story. We'll save that one for later. All right, let's let's do this one. Maybe this is a segue into a bigger podcast, so maybe this will be a tease for next week. Maybe we'll just answer it. Teams have their own internal analytics. Uh, Leafs, Canes, uh, the Devils do. Um, why are they more reliable than the public ones that we currently have access to? I'd, I'd warn someone to be careful on that because we always hear about how, like, oh, like, Tampa Bay says that their internal analytics on Dan Girardi. Are, oh, you know, God. Or, like, the Edmonton Oilers, our internal analytics on Chris Russell are, are much better than, and I'm like, okay, hold on. Your here, internal <laughs> analytics are block shots. Shush. It's funny. Remember, I remember going to, to Andrew Berkshire, and I'm like, what could the Leafs possibly see in Cody CC that like the rest of us aren't seeing? Like, is there anything in the private data? And he goes, "Well, there's not really not that much." And I go, "Okay, all right, just making sure." So, Andrew Berkshire is someone who has private data, so it's it's important to remember that when we're hearing these excuses from teams. At the same time, is this maybe data, a question in- that I might? be able to give some insight into (laughs) yeah go for it go for it rachel i'm curious to hear your opinion just because i wanted to throw that caveat out there right away yeah because i hate it when people appeal to authority and just go oh well they have private data so they must know something you don't you're an idiot and i go well hold on (laughs) doesn't work like that i've never loved that reasoning so as we mentioned um before um there are teams have access to passing data um just the most minutia of things and you could do a number of different things there are teams that have models for defending and and various things that are all made up with data that just isn't even publicly available so you could have a model that predicts defensive success let's say <clears throat> and it might tell you something that isn't even available publicly and I think defense and goaltending, those are the big things where we're missing a lot and the, and the private yes. data can really help. There yeah. is data that would tell you a goaltender's save percentage within two seconds of a cross-ice pass, which is huge because that tells you about their lateral movement. Um, there is a lot of teams have biometric data 
And that can tell you about a player's performance. So when everyone's yelling and shouting and screaming about this player is playing well, but and he needs to play more. Well, maybe he's not playing more because the biometric data says if he goes past this threshold, he's A, more likely to risk for injury, and B, his performance drops off considerably, and that's probably something that they've tested. But so, what I would say is that a lot of the times teams don't test a player in higher leverage minutes. They tend to keep that third-pairing defenseman on the third pair or that yes. fourth line or on the fourth line. What a lot of us just want to see is, hey, give them a shot with some better players and see what happens. Yeah, I would say it's it's more reliable because there's a way larger sample size and more data. Like, when you talk about, okay, let's talk about defending um, in general. There is, you can sort for defending off the cycle, defending off the rush, defending off the forecheck, uh, defending off of an entry. Like, there's like seven different things that you can sort for. We don't have any of those things publicly. We have combined. And we even have, that where is was the shot and where was it taken? And we don't know if it was off the rush. We don't know if there was a pass preceding it. There's exactly. a lot of missing information. So when you're from talking about public stats, there is there's just a bunch of really key context that's missing that isn't missing usually in internal stats. And now that the NHL is bringing in the the measuring, there's going to be even more and. And so you'll be able to have even a bigger context. So you'll be able to have a bigger picture of, of how everything fits in. And, and that's really important. So for me, like, I remember looking at what someone's expected model said based on public data, which is like the best you can do versus what something said on internal data. And it was hugely different. And that was because of all of the context that was provided in the other model that's privatized. Right. And so that's sort of where I, having seen what is available both publicly and privately, kind of see the difference. Um, and that's just kind of my perspective on it. And you know what? We're over an hour into the podcast now, so I feel like we should probably get out of here before people get too sick of us. That's probably a good idea. Welcome to psychology class with Ian Tullock, Professor I love it. Ian. It was fun. It's reminding me of my university days. I miss as you can tell, I'm obsessed with psychology. Okay, why uh, don't you come back to university? We can go to class together. Uh, cause I Because yeah, I'm in like, nutrition class and I literally brought McDonald's with me. I mean, I had KFC tonight, so I don't get to make fun of you for your unhealthy choices today. But But I also had quinoa salad, so yay! <laughs> No kale salad? Disappointing. It had kale in it. Well, there you go. Okay, I guess that counts. That yeah, counts. There we go. All right. Let's uh, let's get out of here, and maybe we'll do a deep dive into that at some point. That could be fun. That could be a good like episode in its own, I think. But enjoy the bye week, Leafs fans. And for non-Leafs fans, which is probably a lot of our listeners. Also uh, enjoy the bye week. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be watching a lot of NHL this week. I've been like trying to watch more games around the NHL. But I'm going to have so much free time this week that I'm going to be doing so many deep dives on different teams, like, video-wise. So I might do some articles for it at the NHL, uh, you know, the Athletic NHL. So that could be a good time. We'll see what I get to write about this week. All right. Have a great week, everyone. Au revoir. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic, and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter. 
at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.